Hello, friends, and welcome to Always Ready, a production of the ChristianManifesto.org, where we seek to equip others to apply a biblical worldview in all of life. I'm your host, Jared Links, and today in this podcast episode, we're going to be continuing our series detailing clarified doctrines of the church, a series that I started, um, issues that I think that we as the church need to be clear about. We need to be speaking with biblical clarity on these particular issues, and today we're going to be examining the doctrine of the Lordship of Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? How does that impact the way that we as his followers view obedience and submission to him? What does it mean for Christ to be Lord over all? Well, I want us to walk through Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and we're going to examine this doctrine by pulling eight points out of this particular passage. And what we're going to see in this episode is that Jesus Christ is the Lord over all, uh, that his lordship covers everything, that he is the supreme sovereign king of the universe, and that his headship over the church uh, means that he has the sole authority, and that he is the magnificently glorious one whom we serve. And so let me read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 here, and then let's dive in. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so the first thing that I want you to notice from these verses is that Jesus is the exclusive Lord. There is exclusive language used in this particular text all through it, really. If you look at verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Uh, verse 22, we are reconciled in his body, not multiple bodies. His body alone, the body of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ alone. And all of this, all of this language points to the truth that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Uh, that he alone has the exclusive title to the lordship of the universe. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so here again we see the exclusivity of the Lord in this particular cross-reference. And there is no better place for us to begin our examination of the Lordship of Christ, than to assert that he alone is the Lord. 
that no one else has this authority. No one else is the way of salvation. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the only head of the church. And this means that our exclusive allegiance belongs to Christ, uh, that we worship him, that we live for him alone. And this brings up another point that we must cover here at the outset, which is the myth of neutrality, uh, that since Christ is Lord, you are either serving him or you are not. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, uh, we read where in that passage, Christ says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral position. There is no middle ground. And that fact means that we as believers, we must seek to honor Christ as Lord in all of our life, that we must not think in a non-Christian or in a neutral, supposedly neutral way about anything. Instead, we must bring biblical Christianity to bear in everything because Christ is Lord over all. Uh, That as we covered in the last episode, he has given us his sufficient word that we know what we need to do and who we are called to be to live pleasing before him in all of life, that we know how to live glorifyingly to his name. And so whenever we go into any sphere of life, Our agenda, our objective, our goal is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that we are bringing the principles of his word to bear in every section of life. Secondly, the second uh, point that I want to make from this passage about the lordship of Christ is that he is the divine Lord that we see in verse 15, uh, that this passage, we see that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And the Greek word for image here is the word icon, which which means to be a copy or a likeness, that Christ is by nature divine, and he reveals God to us. Uh, John chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, it says this, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so when we see Christ, we see uh, the image of God, for he truly is God. And Paul here in Colossians is pointing to the divinity of Christ, that he is truly God with this phrase. And we see a very similar wording in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the same general concept that we saw in Colossians chapter 1. That the reason that Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father is because he himself is divine. This is not something that could be said of you and I as mere human beings. No one's going around saying, hey, you perfectly image God. You perfectly show what it is for, you perfectly show the nature of God. You perfectly reveal his character. That we are made in his image as human beings, but we are fallen as human beings. I'm sure you've probably noticed that fact. But Christ is called the exact imprint of the nature of God in the book of Hebrews. He is the perfect representation of God. And no one could look at a human and say, that's the perfect representation of God. But you can look at Jesus Christ 
and you can say that he is. Uh, Christ never fails in any way. He never falls into sin. He never fails to keep the law. He always obeys God's holy and righteous commands. And so it is absolutely vital for us to understand the divinity of the Lord. Uh, that if we fail to grasp this point, we have failed to grasp what it means for Christ to be Lord. Uh, that he is the supreme and the complete authority because he is God. Uh, this is not just another man. Jesus is divine, and so he is Lord. And I want you to notice the, the last phrase here in verse 15. It says, the firstborn of all creation. And now many, many cults, many, many false religions have been started on the basis of false interpretations of this particular section of this verse. Uh, they will assert that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of creation, meaning that he is the first creature made by God, according to their understanding. Uh, some others, such as Mormons, will say that the Son was begotten by the Father, in the sense that the Son is a second God. So you don't have the Trinity, where we have one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we have two separate gods, according to Mormonism. Of course, humanity has the ability to become gods as, as well as, as you study their teachings. And so they are viewing Christ as a mere created being. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses, they also believe that Christ is a created being and that he was not resurrected physically, but only spiritually. And so, of course, whenever these people come to Colossians chapter 1, they're going to have all kinds of outlandish interpretations. And, and for example, here is one Mormon elder on this verse, and I'll, I'll throw the link to this in the show notes below. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, the firstborn of Heavenly Father's spirit children, the creator of all things, the head of the church, and the first to be resurrected. Uh, notice how Christ is not viewed as eternally divine. Jesus is viewed as the first of the Father's spirit children. That is a fundamental denial of Christianity by the false church of Mormonism. And the official website of the Jehovah Witness, and once again, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes as well. It says, God created Jesus before creating Adam. In fact, God created Jesus and then used him to make everything else, including the angels. That is why the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation by God. And so once again, we see a denial of the divinity of Jesus Christ, the eternal existence of Christ. And they actually cite Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, whenever making this particular statement. And so, how are we to understand this particular passage that so many have stumbled over? Well, what we can see is that I pointed out earlier that the clear context of the passage, the clear teaching of the passage, is that no one can perfectly be the image of God, the perfect representation of God, other than Christ, because he is divine. It, it is an indication, it is a clear testimony to his divinity in that part of the text. Uh, but what about this word firstborn? What are we to make of this particular part of this passage? Uh, well, the Old Testament context of this word is, is so important for us to understand. And also you'll notice that it's used twice here in these verses. Uh, Dr. James White, who in my estimation is one of the most foremost defenders of the faith in our day, uh, he points out actually that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 
it uses this word right at 130 times. And of those 130 references, as we begin to examine those, roughly half of them come from the genealogies of Genesis and the genealogies of Chronicles. Uh, and in that case, the word, it just has the standard meaning of firstborn, as in the first one born in a family. Uh, however, quite often, it's actually a phrase used to reference position rather than the notion of being born first. For example, we read this in the last part of Exodus 4.22. Uh, God is speaking and says, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, obviously, God chose to be in a special covenantal relationship with Israel, uh, that he values them as his firstborn son, that they are his special possession. They are given this unique place by the grace of God in the old covenant. And another example of this, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 9, for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. It's the last part of that verse. And so we see that same type of wording that we saw in Exodus. Now, God is not saying that Israel was the first nation to ever exist. He's not saying that Ephraim was Joseph's firstborn. Ephraim was Joseph's child, and he was the second child born, according to Genesis 41, 52. But in the sight of God, he was the firstborn, meaning that he was given that special position. He was given that position of preeminence. Now let's look at one more text, and we'll tie all this up together in Colossians. Psalm 89, 27. It's a very similar meaning to what Paul says in Colossians. Uh, this verse, it says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now this verse is foreshadowing the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this verse, it, it is talking about David, but further than that, it's talking about Christ before his incarnation. And what is making him the firstborn mean in this text? Uh, well, the focus, of course, um, talking about David first, it's on David's relationship, that he would be brought up, he would be elevated above all the kings of the earth. He would be given a special position by God. And, of course, even more so, talking about Christ, that he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is given the, the seat on high, the seat of the right hand of the Father. And so what we see in these passages is that the concept of firstborn, it's discussing a position. It's not just talking about the fact that you were born first sequentially. And so coming back to Colossians 1, we should see firstborn. It doesn't mean that it's Christ is the first creation that God ever made. We should understand this as being a reference to power, to preeminence, to the sovereignty of Christ. And so whenever Paul here says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that we should Understand that as referencing his power above everything else. It is clearly saying that he is the Lord of all creation, that he is the great Savior who we serve. And this text places an emphasis upon the divinity of the Lord. Uh, verse 16 says that he is above all things. He created all things, which shows his divinity. And I want to show you as the third point about the Lordship of Christ here. We see the creating Lord in verses 16 through the first part of verse 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so what do we see Paul talking about here in this, this particular portion of the verse? Well, he is showing the power of Christ. Uh, that not only is he the one who is above all, he is the one who created all. Uh, which is, by the way, 
exactly what we would expect based upon our understanding of the divinity of the Lord in verse 15. Uh, that this just flows. The creation was a work of God. It was a work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was a Trinitarian work. And since he created all things in heaven and earth, all things exist for his glory. And he is fully able to order everything as he sees fit. In other words, this is Christ's world, and Christ sets the rules for it. He created visible and invisible things here. Uh, whether it is the things of heaven that we do not see or the things of earth that we, that we do see. And this reference to thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, it most likely references uh, the heavenly beings. It's discussing the angels, which of course flows right from the previous phrase uh, regarding things being invisible. Uh, understanding these as angels, it also goes right along with Paul's comment later on in chapter 2, verse 18, regarding not worshiping angels. The context helps to point to this understanding. And the point here is that Christ is sovereign even above the mightiest of the angelic host. Now, that the mightiest of the angelic host is still a creation of Christ and is under his lordship. And that is why the end of verse 16 says, All things were created through him and for him. And so not only does Christ create everything, everything exists for his glory, for his praise. And this means that as Abraham Kuyper famously said, every single square inch of creation is to give glory, praise, and honor to Christ. Paraphrasing there. The creation it does not exist solely for you and I. It does not exist for you and I. It exists for Christ. And that is a radical reorientation of our priorities, isn't it? that we don't go through this life seeking our own sinful pleasure, that we are not the center of the universe, that we exist and everything else exists for the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ. Far from, far from being unimportant, Genesis chapter 1 is actually foundational to understanding the lordship of Christ. Because if you rip the doctrine of creation out of the book of Genesis and out of the Bible, uh, then you're taking a huge shot at the lordship of Christ as presented by the Apostle Paul. But because Genesis 1 is in the Bible, and by the way, it's not myth, if you're wondering. It's in the Bible as an actual historical narrative. We know that God created because it's in his word that Christ made the world and that he made everything in it. And therefore, we live in his world as those who are his representatives, as those who are his ambassadors, who have been made in his image and who have been bought by his blood. And we seek to take dominion of the earth, to subdue it, to use it for his glory. We do that by proclaiming the gospel, by living out the biblical message, by proclaiming the entirety of God's word, and verse 17, it clearly says that Jesus is before all things. He existed before anything, before the universe came into being. Uh, that is because just like the Father and the Spirit, Christ is divine. Uh, therefore, he existed for all eternity, just like the rest of the members of the Trinity. Uh, he is also the reason that life continues to exist, which brings me to my fourth point, the sustaining Lord in the last part of verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so we are drawing breath right now because of the power of Christ. We don't just see his creative power in the book of Colossians. We also see his sustaining power. 
If Christ were to stop sustaining life, then everything would utterly collapse. And I want you to think about the power that it takes for Christ to sustain the universe. The sun, the moon, the stars, all of the oceans, all of the animals, all of the sea creatures, all of the human beings, all the little insects, some of which we might wish that he wasn't sustaining at certain points. But nonetheless, he is sustaining everything. And it's not like he's having a difficult time holding it all together here. It's not like he's about to buckle underneath the weight and he needs us to come along and help him in this project. No, he is not having any difficulty whatsoever sustaining it because he is the infinite, he has the infinite power as Lord. Fifthly, we see the authoritative Lord. Verse 18, first part of verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, what does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church? Here's a basic definition. It means that we do what our Lord says at all times, in all places, and under every circumstance. That our complete and total allegiance is to Christ, and as the head of the church, he dictates everything. Total and complete supremacy is given to the Lord because he has the authority. The headship of Christ over his church means that we submit to him in every area. Because just as the physical head directs the physical body, uh, so also Christ directs his body, his bride, the church. Uh, Paul is pointing out this fact that it's imperative for us to consider in every area. For example, if you're a Christian and you're wondering, how should I treat my fellow believers? How, how do I relate to them? How do I care for them? Well, the answer to that question is you should treat them in a way which honors Christ, which he has commanded you. You should actually seek to imitate the Lord in how you treat others. And Christ actually said this in John 13, 12 through 15. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, in citing this passage, I am not advocating that every single church needs to go buy five-gallon buckets and wash every single congregation member's feet. That's not what I'm advocating for here in this podcast. The point is that Christ serves, and so should we. That if our Lord served, then shouldn't we as his disciples, we as his followers who have been bought by his blood, shouldn't we also seek to serve others, to love other individuals? And so the authority of Christ, it leads us to submit to his commands, and it leads us to imitate his example. And it prompts us to humility because this great Lord who has come to redeem us, who has set us free from our sins for his glory, who laid down his life for us, who has served his disciples, we also should serve others for the sake of the honor and the praise of Christ. And this doctrine of headship, the headship of Christ over the church, it has so many, so many applications for countless other areas. Um, we, we could talk about the church leadership structure. Does it fit what Christ has commanded in his word? Does the events on the church calendar, are they our ideas or are they commands of Christ? Uh, those are just a couple other examples. But I hope that you see the deep impact that this doctrine has upon the church. 
Sixthly, we see that Christ is the preeminent Lord. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, in verse 18. Now, Jesus was not the first person to be raised uh, from the dead in a certain sense, but he was in a different way, and we gotta, we got to dig into that distinction a little bit here if we're going to understand. We know Lazarus was raised from the dead before Christ. You can go back through the Gospels. You can see that several others were raised before Christ. You can see in the Old Testament examples where uh, Elijah raises the widow's son in 1 Kings chapter 17. And so in that sense, Christ was not the first one to ever be raised from the dead. However, in another way, he was actually the first one. He was the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Uh, that Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. And because our Lord is risen, we also have this hope of eternal life. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 21. It actually says this explicitly. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Uh, we as Christians, we have the hope, the security that we will be risen again because of Christ. Uh, that the Lord has already been raised. The grave is empty. And because of that fact, the evidence of this truth is certain. And Paul is pointing to the doctrine of the resurrection in Colossians. And Christ is risen. He is the one who has died for us, and he has defeated death. And I want you to notice also the use of this word. That word firstborn didn't mean that Christ was like actually the first person to ever be raised from the dead. It means that he was the first person to ever, ever be raised, never to die again. He has the ultimate position of power and authority. It's not like whenever you and I receive our resurrected, glorified bodies, we're going to be put on an equal status to the divinity of Christ or anything of that sort. Uh, no, there is none other like the Lord Jesus. He is the supreme one. And by his resurrection, he declared that he is the Lord. It was the exclamation point on the declaration of his lordship. Seventh, we see that Jesus is the sufficient Lord in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, how does this verse actually show the sufficiency of the Lord? He was the fullness of God. He's not halfway full, needing us to come along and help him out and make up the other half. No full divinity dwells in Christ. That can be said about no other human being. Now, okay, you and I cannot look at one another and say that we have all of the absolute perfections of God. No, we actually have to go through the progressive nature of sanctification, that we seek to continually grow uh, because we are fighting against the sin of this world. We're fighting against the sin of our own flesh. And so sanctification is a battle. It's not that whenever you're saved, you're instantly declared divine by Christ or something like that. No, Christ alone has the fullness of God. He is the fullness of God, uh, meaning that just as the Father is all-powerful, so is Christ. Just as the Father is all-knowing, so is Jesus. Just as the Father does not change, neither does Christ. And none of those things can be said about us as mere human beings. And yet, not only, uh, not only does the fullness of God dwell in Christ, but it is pleased to dwell in him. 
of course, it would be a pleasing thing for the Father because Christ is the perfection of divinity, that there is no contamination of sin within him, uh, that he is himself completely perfect, that he is completely obedient uh, to the will, to the ways of God, for he is himself divine. And so all of this means that he is sufficient. We talked about the exclusivity of the Lord as our first point. But if he was not also sufficient, it would actually be completely disastrous. Think about Jesus saying, I am exclusive, but I'm not powerful enough to save you. That makes no sense whatsoever because exclusivity and sufficiency go hand in hand together. It is not just that he claims exclusive lordship. He does but it is that he is actually the only one. He is also the only one who literally actually possesses the ability to save. He is the only one sufficient for the task. And so these doctrines are connected. These doctrines build off one another. Uh, But let me press into this point a little bit more regarding sufficiency here. Because Christ is the only one sufficient, You and I should not go around looking for our Savior and Lord in other things. A simple example would be that because I am saved by Christ, because I serve Christ, I don't go to Allah to seek to serve Allah, the false god of Islam. A more pinpointed illustration would be that Christ alone has sufficient power, complete and total authority. And so I understand that Every other human authority that we see is only delegated power. It's only delegated authority. And that means I don't look to the government to fulfill all of my spiritual and physical needs. Rather, I work hard trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to provide for my necessities via that labor. It was never the government's God-given responsibility to be your Savior or to be your Lord. It was never the government's God-given responsibility to provide for all of my needs, to protect my God-given rights by rewarding good and punishing evil. And so to try to find my fulfillment from governmental programs, as an example here, is to misunderstand the nature of government, but it's also to misunderstand the sufficiency of Christ. It's actually a denial of his sufficiency whenever I'm actually living in application because I'm living according to my will, not according to his commands. We could apply that a little bit further, but I think you get the main idea of what I'm driving at here. So let's look at our last point, the reconciling Lord, verses 20 through 23. And through him the reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This was the purpose of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. It was so that Christ would fulfill the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, Because he is truly God, he can satisfy the wrath of God. Because he is truly man, he can serve as our atonement and take our place, paying the penalty for our sins. And there is actually a very interesting passage about this concept in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. 
Uh, look at that text here. It says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of recon- reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Christ reconciles us to himself. That we once were enemies, we once were hostile, we were dead in our sin, but now we are brought near because of the work of Jesus. And the Greek word here, it actually... Uh, the Greek word for reconciliation, it carries the idea of atonement also, uh, which you see in verse 21 here in 2 Corinthians, that, uh, which talks about Christ being made sin for us. Uh, that is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement right here in the middle of the text. Uh, that is why Christ died, to reconcile us to God, to build up a kingdom for his own glory. Uh, because of God's perfect justice, Christ died because he satisfies that perfect justice on behalf of his people. As sinners, we had the infinite wrath of God aimed directly at us. So we needed an infinite sacrifice, which is Christ. This is the ministry of reconciliation through the atonement of the Lord. And of course, this passage tell us, tells us that we have received this ministry of reconciliation. That's why we go out and proclaim the gospel. That's why we go out we proclaim the entire counsel of the word of God and we seek to apply it in all of life. We see here that Christ undertook this mission not only so that sinners would be redeemed, but so that all things would be reconciled. In other words, we, we look around us, we see this world system that is hostile to God. Jesus gained the victory at the cross in this phrase here, this verse, it shows us the scope of the victory. Now, this passage is not saying that every single human being will literally be saved. It's not saying that every person who has ever lived will obtain salvation in Christ. But it means that Christ has the final victory. That the earth, which now groans under sin, will no longer carry the weight of sin, for, for it will be cast out by Christ. All of the opponents of Christ will be subjected to him. The beginning of the process of reconciliation under the new covenant started at the cross where he died and at the grave where he rose again. And this is the ministry given to us as his church that we are commissioned to go out to tell the world about the exclusive king, the Lord Jesus Christ, about this Lord who humbled himself to death on the cross that we might be saved. This king who made peace, not by the might of his sword, but by the blood of his cross. And one day that he will come back to cast his enemies finally away. That he is reigning even now at the right hand of the Father. We see the mission of the Lord Jesus, the mission of the church here. And as a great, as a Christian, it should be a great blessing to you to see that you are given a role in this ministry. That you get to be a tool used by God for his kingdom that he uses his church, the proclamation of his word, to advance his kingdom, to bring glory to his holy name. And you see here that we were opposed to Christ. We were performing evil deeds. We were alienated. But now, he counts us above reproach. 
because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. And so we were, who were hostile have now been made holy because the Lord who is holy has covered us with his blood, thereby making us holy. This is all because Christ undertook the ministry of reconciliation. So let me give you a couple of points here for application as we close this podcast episode. First of all, live all of your life for the glory of Christ. We need Christians who think biblically about everything. Don't seek your sufficiency in another source. Run to Christ. Run to his word. Secondly, bow before King Jesus and King Jesus alone. Be transformed by the scripture that he has given to you. Seek to serve and to glorify him only. Uh, Don't serve other gods. Don't serve other false deities. Thirdly and lastly, follow the example of Christ. Make it your mission to love as he loved, to live as you see him serving and being obedient to God. Imitate those things in your own life. And so we see here the doctrine of the lordship of Christ has immense application for us. And so may we live faithfully as those who are servants of this great king. You can find some resources, quotations, show notes, all of that below. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That definitely helps us out whenever you do that. Go to the ChristianManifesto.org. You can check out the wide variety of articles there on topics from theology to politics to apologetics and many other things. Be sure to follow myself, Jared Links, on Twitter and Facebook. We'll see you in the next episode. And until then, remember to know the scripture that you may be always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. God bless.